Well, good morning, everybody. Happy July 4th weekend. So this Sunday is a very unusual Sunday morning because this morning our main scripture text is from the Old Testament. Uh, and that hasn't happened much since I got here. In fact, I checked, and in the 16 months that I have been here, there's only been three mornings where the main scripture text was from the Old Testament. And two of those mornings were when Bob McCoy was preaching, not me. <laughs> um, so to any of you who really appreciate the Old Testament, I apologize, because this is long overdue. That said, I'm actually not preaching on this passage out of a sense of obligation, uh, but because I read it recently and I really felt like God spoke to me through it. He impressed something on me that was very meaningful for me and I hope will be meaningful for you as well. So I'd like to start with a question, which is, have you ever wished that God would make his existence and power more obvious than he does? I know I have. Uh, there are times where I've really wanted him to do that for my own sake and for the sake of others around me. For example, back when I worked in campus ministry, most of you probably know, I used to uh, work with Campus Crusade for Christ at UConn, uh, I would regularly talk to people about my faith, people who did not have the same faith or uh, outwardly were, were act actively uh, rejecting faith entirely. And there were two on-campus groups that I participated in regularly where I did this. One was called the Yukon Freethinkers, which was mostly atheists and agnostics. And the other group was uh, an interfaith discussion group, where most of the people who were not Christians there were Muslim or what you might call modern pagans, people who identified as practicing uh, Wicca and that sort of thing. And uh, sometimes I would think, how great would it be if I could just walk into one of these groups and, I don't know, like, transfigure into a lion or something, and then transfigure back and be like, that was the power of Jesus right there. And just make it abundantly obvious that the God that I worship is God. Uh, because trying to convince people through things like having challenging conversations, debates, and actually developing relationships with people and getting to know them is challenging. It's hard. And I would think, I wish I could just blow everybody's socks off with a clear violation of the ordinary laws of nature, with a miracle. And then they'd have to believe. But in all of those conversations that I had, and during my six years at UConn, I had a lot, I can't remember anything happening that was clearly miraculous by the strict definition of the word. Uh, there were definitely moments where it felt like the Holy Spirit was uh, present and guiding the conversation. There were moments where uh, people stopped talking about things just in intellectual or theoretical terms and actually started being vulnerable about what was going on in their hearts. And in those moments, I really felt like I could sense the Holy Spirit at work. And there were actually moments of genuine conversion, too, uh, with people actually coming to receive Jesus. And by some people's definition of the term, including my own definition, that in itself is a miracle. Um, but according to the strict definition of the, word, of the word, a actual violation of the laws of nature, I can't say that I ever saw that. Um, and I remember at times being frustrated by that. 
I remember people in Freethinkers especially would say things like, you know, if there really was a God, he could just write in the stars, hello, I'm here, I'm God. And we could look through a telescope and see that, and we'd be like, okay, yeah, there is a God. But we've never seen that. Well, in today's scripture passage, God doesn't write, hello, I'm here, in the stars, but he does reveal his existence and his power in a very clear and undeniable way, through a violation of the ordinary laws of nature. And so this story, it reads a little bit like wish fulfillment for me, minus the slaughtering at the end. We'll get to that. <laughs> um, but there's something about it that just captures, yeah, that's something that I long for. And uh, it's, it's not a short story. We're going to le- read a lot of scripture this morning. So if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open them up and follow along. Uh, we're going to be reading from 1 Kings chapter 18, starting in verse 17. 1 Kings chapter 18, starting in verse 17. Now, this is a story about a guy named Elijah who was a prophet for God in Israel during the reign of a king named King Ahab. Now, King Ahab was a very, very bad king. In fact, it says a little bit earlier in this same book uh, that he did more evil than any of those before him. So one of the things that Ahab did was he married a very wicked foreign woman named Jezebel. Even if you don't know the story in the Old Testament about Jezebel, you've probably heard people refer to women in a negative way as a Jezebel. Uh, And that comes from this story uh, where King Ahab married a a woman named Jezebel and she worshipped the false gods of Baal and Asherah. Uh, And because of that, Ahab himself began to worship the false gods. And the two of them together encouraged all of Israel to worship false gods. And poor Elijah, he was one of the few people in the land who was still trying to call people to worship the true God of Israel. And our passage for this morning starts with a confrontation between Elijah and Ahab. So here's what it says, starting in verse 17. When Ahab saw Elijah, he said to him, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel. And bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets at Mount Carmel. So what's about to happen here at Mount Carmel is a showdown between the one single true prophet of of God and, I don't know if you caught that, how many prophets of the false gods there are, but altogether there's 850 So one true prophet of God and 850 false prophets of Baal and Asherah, along with a whole bunch of other Israelite witnesses. So continuing on, Elijah went before the people and said, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. No response from the people. Okay. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let them choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. 
So he's talking about setting up animal sacrifices. And I want us to notice what Elijah is doing here, because I think this is, this is neat. You know how when a good magician does a card trick, he lets you do things like cut the deck and pick the card yourself? You know, a good magician isn't going to say, oh, here's your card, right? He says, okay, pick, pick your card, right? Because the more variables that you're in charge of, the more interesting the trick is at the end, if it works, right? The more impressive it is. And so that's what Elijah is doing here. He's letting the people pick the sacrifices and he's letting the prophets pick which of the bulls that they want because he doesn't want anyone to be able to say at the end, oh, you messed with the sacrifice. You picked that bull that's prone to spontaneous combustion. You know, he doesn't want anybody to be able to say that. So he's reducing the variables. So he tells the people to tell the prophets to take the bull that they've picked, to cut it up, and then put it on the wood as for a sacrifice. But don't light it on fire yet. So continuing in verse 23. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, he is God. Then all the people said, what you say is good. So here's the showdown that Elijah is setting up, right? Uh, both he and the prophets, they're going to set up the bull for sacrifice, and then they are going to call on fire from heaven to come down from their God and to light the bull on fire. So in other words, they are both clearly going to be asking for a miracle. They're going to be asking for a clear violation of the laws of nature. And whichever God answers, that God is clearly the real God because he can override the laws of nature. And the people are like, yeah, that sounds like a good setup. Let's do that. So continuing on, verse 25. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls and prepare it first, since there are so many of you. Call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bull given them and prepared it. Then they called in the name of Baal from morning till noon. Oh, Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made. So the prophets of Baal call on Baal's name uh, from morning till noon. And the Hebrew word for morning there implies daybreak. So you've got to imagine if daybreak is happening around 6 a.m., they have just spent six hours calling on the name of Baal, dancing, shouting, six hours. That's a long time, right? Trying to cajole their God to, to act. And I have to admit, I really appreciate Elijah here because he's not even trying to call on his God right now, right? He's, he's just sitting there watching them do this for six hours hours. He's just letting him go crazy. Uh, it seems like the only reason that he's waiting as long as he is, is so that when he does actually call on the true God, it's going to be even more embarrassing for all these people, right? So I get the sense that Elijah is having fun here. And I get that sense even more in what comes next. So it says, at, at uh, noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is God. Perhaps he is deep in thought or busy, or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. So this is a clear example of ancient Near Eastern trash talking. <laughs> and it's maybe even more so than we realize, because the Hebrew word here that gets translated as busy, um, it literally means a withdrawal into a private place. And 
it's, this term was used for a particular kind of withdrawal into a particular kind of private place that all of us would be familiar with, that all of us do every day. So basically what Elijah is saying is like, perhaps your God is on the toilet. And he's, he's just egging them on, right? And they, they take the bait. They go for it. They say, so they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears as was their custom until their blood flowed. Midday passed and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. So now the prophets of Baal, they've been at this for an entire day. Six hours plus another six hours. Twelve whole hours. Twelve hours of shouting and screaming and dancing. And eventually, when none of that works, they start mutilating themselves. Please, answer us. And the whole time, Elijah's just patiently waiting. Occasionally taunting, but patiently waiting. So now comes the moment of truth. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come here to me. They came to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which was in ruins. Elijah took twelve stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. With the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it large enough to hold two seahs of seed. That's about 15 liters worth. The significance of that will be will be obvious in a moment. Uh, he arranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces, and laid it on the wood. So right now, if you're like me, you're thinking, okay, Elijah just waited 12 hours. Uh, now he's going to show them up. This is the moment. Uh, if he just calls on God once, and that bull gets lit on fire, that's going to be pretty impressive. That's going to put everybody to shame, right? But he's not content just to do that. He wants to make it even more dramatic. He wants to make God's power even more on display in an incredible way. And so before he calls on his God, he does something else. Then he said to them, fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said. And they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered. And they did it the third time. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. So remember, that trench holds 15 liters of water, right? So this thing is soaked. It's dripping. I don't know if you've ever tried to build a campfire when the wood is damp, tried to light that. It's impossible. You can't do it. But this is not just damp. This is soaking. It's got 15 liters of water dripping off of it. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed. O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, the stones, and the soil and also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Then Elijah commanded them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let anyone get away. They seized them, and Elijah had them brought down to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered there.
So like I said, minus the slaughtering at the end, this definitely plays out as wish fulfillment, a wish fulfillment fantasy for me. Uh, there's this clear showdown between the true God and the false gods, and there is a clear display of God's power over those false gods. And, you know, you see, you see the, the false prophets get put to shame, and the prophet of God just seems so cool and so confident, and he ends up totally vindicated. And I can't, I can't help but think when I read this, like, yeah, that's the way I want it to be. And at the same time, I, can't, I also can't help but think, why isn't it always like that? You know? Because although there are incredible moments like this in Scripture, and I believe in the modern world, I still believe God does miracles. I, I would never deny that. Although there are amazing moments like that, a lot of the time, and dare I say it, most of the time, God's power is not displayed this clearly. Um, a lot of the time, Christians debate with people of other faiths, with atheists and agnostics, and they fail to persuade. I would say more often than not, that was my experience when I was at Freethinkers and in in Interfaith. And so, although a part of me just loves this story, I think it's so, so cool, uh, it is wish fulfillment in some, some sense for me, um, there's a part of me that reads it and also gets a little frustrated. Because Mount Carmel moments seem so rare. And it's because of that that I'm so, so thankful for where this story goes next. Because it would seem just a little too neat and tidy and not true to life if this was the end of the story. So what follows, I think, is even more profound. And what follows is what really touched my heart when I read this recently. So skipping ahead a little bit to chapter 19, here's what it says. Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. So as dramatic as what happened on Mount Carmel was, it didn't work on the people that mattered most. Right? It didn't work on the people that had the authority to actually change Israel. Ahab and Jezebel, they didn't say, well, wow, that was a remarkable display of Yahweh's power, and now we are going to start following him. No, instead they say, ah, the prophet of God, it's time for him to die. We need to kill him. And we know the same thing happened to Jesus. The religious leaders knew that Jesus was doing miraculous things. They couldn't deny it. They saw him healing people. They saw him casting demons out. But did they then submit to Jesus? No. They tried to kill Jesus. And they succeeded. Well, not permanently. But they succeeded temporarily, right? Those dramatic displays of God's power did not work on the religious leaders during Jesus' time, just in the same way that the dramatic display at Mount Carmel didn't work on Ahab and Jezebel. Now, it is true that Mar Mount Carmel and what happened there did sway some people, right? Verse 39 said, when all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. 
But one thing I want us to notice is that these people who had their minds swayed, they didn't really have any allegiance to start with. Uh, you might remember when Elijah first talked to them, he said, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. It says the people said nothing. The people said nothing. So they weren't like, yeah, we like Yahweh. Or, yeah, we, we're for Baal. Right? They, didn't, they didn't pick a side. They were just kind of like, I don't know. They didn't have a firm allegiance. So the people whose minds were swayed by what happened at Mount Carmel didn't really have a vested interest in the way that things were going to turn out. They were open to anything. But when people already have a vested interest in viewing things a certain way, that's when miracles are unlikely to have any power, any effect. Ahab and Jezebel, they had a vested interest in not worshiping the God of Israel. So they weren't persuaded by what happened on Mount Carmel. And in a similar way, the Pharisees had a vested interest in the system continuing as it was, which meant not acknowledging Jesus as Lord. And so they also were not persuaded by Jesus' miraculous signs. So what I want us to see is that although miraculous signs and great displays of God's power, it has some ability to sway people's minds, there's no guarantee that it's going to work. And for the people that we might most want to see persuaded by miraculous signs, those are the people that it's probably least likely to work on. Uh, and so I think, you know, rather than getting frustrated about the fact that we don't see Mount Carmel incidents as often as we like. Instead, what we should do is trust that God knows what he's doing and that he's the one who really knows when a sign is going to be effective, when it's appropriate, when it's not. And he's going he's to do it when it is and when it isn't. And we might, we might disagree with his judgment, but ultimately he's really the one that knows. And it seems like this moment on Mount Carmel, this was a moment where a special sign was actually a really effective thing to do. So God did it. But even then, it did not have the power to persuade everybody. And Elijah was depressed by that. Here's what it says in verse 4, chapter 19. Uh, Elijah says, I have had enough, Lord. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Isn't that interesting? I find this so interesting, that this is Elijah's attitude now. Like, he just called down fire from heaven. <laughs> he ignited a soaking wet altar. He completely humiliated the opposition. He just looked like Mr. Awesome. But now he wants to die. And here's what I want us to notice. Elijah experienced an incredible display of God's power. But he doesn't seem especially empowered by that. See that? You'd think he'd feel like he could do anything after that. You'd think he'd be like, oh, Ahab and Jezebel are coming after me? Well, I'll call down fire on them too. But that's not his attitude. He just says, I'm tired. I've had enough. God, could you just take me away? So here's what I think this story is telling us. One, 
Dramatic displays of God's power don't persuade everyone to change. And two, dramatic displays of God's power don't necessarily embolden his people. And those, th those two things are totally contrary to our intuition. But I think they're true. And it's one of the, the things that speaks to me about the, the power of Scripture. Because, you know, if you're making up a story, it's not, this isn't really the kind of thing you make up. But it is true to human experience. Miracles have a time, they have a place, they have a purpose. But we shouldn't give them more credit than they're due. And the truth is, there is something that is actually more powerful and more transformative than dramatic displays, than miracles. And that's what the story tells us next. So we're told that Elijah finds a cave. He wants to die, and he goes and he finds a cave to hide. And he spends the night in it. And this is what happens. This is starting in verse 9 of chapter 19. The word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. So right there, Elijah got three overwhelming displays of God's power. A great and powerful wind, an earthquake, and, like on Mount Carmel, fire. But the Lord wasn't in the wind, or the earthquake, or the fire. It isn't until the gentle whisper that Elijah so knows that he's in the presence of God that he shows his humility and his reverence by pulling his cloak over his face. It's then that he knows that this is a holy moment. So we have a natural tendency to think that the best way for God to get people's attention is through the dramatic displays. It's through the miracles, through the wind, the earthquake, the fire. Sometimes we think that the best way for God to prove himself to us is through the dramatic displays. And we get discouraged when there aren't as many as we would like. But what this story tells us is that the most powerful tool that God has for truly changing hearts, not just showing off, but truly changing hearts, is his gentle whisper. So, what does that mean for us? Well, I think there's two sides to the application here. So one has to do with how we share our faith to others, and the other has to do with how we relate to God ourselves. So let's talk about sharing our faith with others. When we buy into the idea 
that God's most powerful tool for changing people are his dramatic displays of power, I think what ends up happening is that we end up focusing on power when we're sharing our faith. Now, what does that mean? It, it means that we end up doing things like being pushy in our conversations or being really defensive or being aggressive because we want to be like Elijah on Mount Carmel. Right? We want to blow people's socks off. We want to impress people. But here's what I think the story teaches us. Instead, what we need to do is encourage people to listen for the gentle whisper of God. What we need to do is encourage people to slow down, to be still, and to listen. And to talk to God. And to ask themselves honest questions about their life. Notice, when the gentle whisper comes to Elijah, it says, what are you doing here, Elijah? In other words, why are you hiding in this cave? What's brought you to this place? What are you afraid of? What are you feeling? Why are you doing the things that you're doing? Remember, I said at the beginning of the message that there were times in Freethinkers and Interfaith where I had conversations where I truly felt that the Holy Spirit was at work. But those moments, they, they usually weren't the moments where I felt like I was winning the debate or where I was, you know, metaphorically speaking, calling down fire from heaven. They were the moments when I felt like somebody I was talking to was getting honest about answering the question, what are you doing here? I remember a student that I had talked to multiple times, and most of our conversations were very intellectual, you know, debate kind of conversations. But one night, he just got really honest and vulnerable, and he started sharing about how when he was a kid, he had done some things that he couldn't forgive himself for. Uh, he started talking about how he thought that if there was a God, he was going to hell and how he had carried that with him for years and years. And as he was sharing about this, he was getting emotional. You know, his, his eyes were welling up a little bit. And I remember thinking, this is a holy moment. And the reason it was holy was because in that moment, he was answering the question that God's gentle whisper asks, which is, what are you doing here? So I really think that the best way for us to lead someone to faith is to help them to listen to that voice that says, what are you doing here? And encourage them to answer it honestly. So the second area of application for our lives has to do with how we relate to God ourselves. And it's this, simple. It's really, really important for us to take time to listen to the gentle whisper. So Elijah had just witnessed incredible display of God's power. He had helped to facilitate a miracle. Uh, he, 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 as he said himself, had been zealous for the Lord. Um, so he had been serving the Lord. He had been zealous for the Lord. And he had been involved in miracles for the Lord. But you know what? He wanted to die. It wasn't until he heard the gentle whisper of God that he was empowered to keep going. 
So, and I really believe the same is true for us. We have to take time to be still and be quiet before the Lord. And not just to talk to him, which is good, but to actually listen. And I'm not saying if you do that, you're literally going to hear like somebody speaking as if you have a headphone in your ear. I mean, you might. I don't know. But it's more the Lord speaks to us directly to our hearts. He bypasses the whole hearing thing. And if we're listening, we can hear what he's saying. But if we never take time to answer that question, where are you, to sit before the Lord and to think about that, we will struggle. We will struggle emotionally and spiritually. I think it's really interesting that God wants us to think of him as as speaking in a whisper. Because I think that suggests two things. One, that God's already very near. You can't... You can't hear a whisper unless the person who's whispering is very, very close by. And the other thing it suggests is that God wants us to lean in. Right? Even if you're close to somebody when they're whispering, you usually have to lean towards them a little bit. You might have to go like this. Right? You have to put a little bit of effort into you, more effort than you normally would to hear the voice. And it's the same thing with God. God wants us to actually be intentional about leaning in about listening for the whisper. And when we practice that, and when we encourage other people to practice that, the results, I believe, are going to be way more powerful and transformative than if we could just call down fire from heaven and put on some dramatic show for people. Or transfigure into a lion when you walk into the atheist club. It's going to be more powerful than that. So, here is what I would encourage you to do uh, in, when we have the reflection song in a moment and throughout this week, and really for the rest of your life, but uh, especially today and throughout this week, um, is to spend some time, some time alone and to hear the whisper of God asking you, where are you? Yeah. Where are you, Dan? Where are you, Angela? Where are you, Jason? And reflect. You know, ask yourself, why am I doing the things I'm doing? What am I afraid of? What holds me back? And then take some time to listen to what God is impressing on your heart that he wants you to know about those things. And ask, what do you want me to do next? Now, I do want to give a little bit of a word of caution Just because we hear something in our head doesn't mean it's from God. Um, It's very important for us to develop discernment. We don't just hear God's voice. We hear our own voice. We hear maybe occasionally the voices of uh, um, evil spiritual beings that want to lead us astray. We hear the voice of our culture sometimes rather than the voice of God. So it takes some skill and it takes being in community with other believers and reading scripture to be able to learn how to discern the voice of God. But we do believe that when we receive Jesus as our Savior, we receive the Holy Spirit. And I believe it is possible for us to tune into the Holy Spirit and to listen to him and to hear what he has to say. So I encourage you to make it a practice, especially this week. Take that time to listen from the Lord. And when you hear things, write them down, 
pray about them. If you hear anything that clearly is not in line with God's will, if it seems like God's asking you to do something violent or unloving or out of line with his word, then toss that out. That's not the voice of God. But take the time to try it, to listen, to pray about what you receive. You know, the voice of God does not, does not tell us to do unloving or um, uh, violent things, but the voice of God does sometimes call us to do challenging things. Or the voice of God might tell you that there's something challenging in your life that you need to let go of. You know, I don't know what he's going to say to you, but it's important to start by listening and leaning in for that gentle whisper. Because there is so much power in that gentle whisper. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are near and that you want to speak to us. And we thank you, Lord, that uh, what, what you can do in your nearness and through the simplicity of your whisper is more powerful than dramatic displays of uh, miracles and that sort of thing. We thank you, Lord, when you do those things and we invite you to do those things. But we pray that in the meantime, we, we would always be listening for that gentle whisper. And God, we pray that you would direct us, that you would make your will known to us, and that you would help us to walk by faith, not by sight. We give you thanks, Lord, and I, I just ask that you would direct each one of us. In Jesus' name, amen.